reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Welcome back. We are in Acts chapter 17 today. But if your Bible is like is your if your Bible is anything like mine, the last part of chapter 16 is on the same page. So if, if chapter 17 begins on the next page, I want you to go back to the very end of Acts chapter 16 because we actually didn't finish out the account of Paul's visit to Philippi. We talked about the fact that he went there. We talked about the fact that he was preaching the gospel there. He had established a Christian presence, that the first convert there was a woman by the name of Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. We talked about the fact that Paul cast the demon out of the girl, the spirit of Pythona, and as a consequence of that, got into trouble with her owners and was imprisoned and then delivered in a miraculous way. And then we talked at the very end about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But unfortunately, we didn't have the opportunity to finish what happened to Paul. Uh, obviously, because there is a 17th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul survived his experience there in Philippi. But it is worth taking a look at what happened at the very end before we move on to this next chapter. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 35 and following. And let's just go ahead and read through the end of this chapter. A reminder again, uh, Paul has been freed by divine intervention. He's been taken to the home of the jailer. His wounds have been dressed. And we're told the jailer and his entire household were baptized. But Paul was not free. He'd been delivered by God, but of course he could have run away when that happened to begin with, and he decided not to. As a matter of fact, when the jailer came in, ready to pull his sword and take his own life, Paul had said, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So it would have been Paul's intention not to run away, but to continue to bear witness to the God who had intervened in such a miraculous way. So what happened then at the end of Philippi? Well, take a look at these verses. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Why do you suppose Paul just didn't go quietly? At the end of his time there in Philippi, he was certainly outnumbered. When they got to Philippi, there were how many in this little band of missionaries? Four. That's all we've got. We've got Paul and Silas, Timothy, who they picked up 
when they went through Lystra. And, of course, we said that Luke had joined them on the journey as well. So there were only four of them in this great city, a city that was predominantly Roman. We said it was it would have been um, citizened by former soldiers of the Roman army. These were people who took great pride in the fact that they were subjects of the emperor. And here's Paul, and he's coming in, and he's preaching another god, another god, another king, and Caesar. Paul could have gotten himself into a whole lot of trouble. And so you have to ask yourself, having been freed, why didn't Paul just slip out quietly, causing no more trouble? I'll tell you why. I think it's because Paul recognized that the church that had been established there, and when I talk about a church, we're not talking about a large congregation. We're talking about a handful of believers. But the believers there, the church that had been established, albeit a small church, was nevertheless precious to Paul. And Paul knew very well that if they could do this to him, a Roman citizen who had certain rights under Roman law, then they would not think twice about doing it to the believers that he was going to leave behind. And so he was going to make it very clear to them that he was not going to go quietly. And I think that even though he is putting his own neck on the line, he was doing that to protect the church. I think that speaks volumes about Paul not only as a great theologian, a great missionary, but as a great pastor, deeply concerned for the life of the church. Presumably many of the believers that were left behind there in Philippi were themselves Roman citizens. And so Paul was reminding the authorities that they simply could not act in violation of Roman law and expect to get away with it. When the jailer came to him and said, the magistrates have sent word to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace, Paul said, no way. They have beaten us. They've imprisoned us without a trial. This is a violation of my rights as a Roman citizen. I want a police escort out of town. And basically, that's what he got. And I think that he did this to preserve the church. And it's interesting to note that he didn't immediately leave. They came and they escorted them, but we are told that he went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Paul, at this point at least, was standing on his rights as a citizen of the Roman Empire. I think there's a place for that, particularly in presumably Christian countries or countries that have a Christian heritage. We have certain rights, and as Christians, we are not supposed to just give up those rights all the time. There are times when it's necessary for the witness of the gospel. Now, Jesus, of course, talks about giving up some of our rights. He doesn't deny the fact that we have rights, but certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. But there are other times when it is necessary to stand on our rights in order to preserve that gospel witness, in order to preserve and protect the ministry and the witness of the church. And I think that's what we see Paul doing here. Now, what's interesting to note is that when Paul went on in Acts chapter 17, to the next place, he evidently left some people behind. At least we can suggest that Luke was left behind there in Philippi. Why? Because the chapter begins with Luke talking in terms of we. We did this, we did that. But when you get to the end of the chapter, what does it say? And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All of a sudden, the we becomes they. 
See, if you read the language very carefully, you get some insight into what's happening here. We're going to see that Paul is going to leave behind various missionaries in various places to encourage the church. Now, presumably, he would not have done that if he thought that they were in danger. Although the Christian life is risky, but nevertheless, Paul knew that if, they were gonna, if their life was going to be forfeit, if they were left behind, he probably would have taken them with him. So we see Paul here acting to preserve and to protect the church. As Christians, that should always be an aim of ours, is to protect the church and its witness. And he did that there at Philippi. But he did move on. And he moved on because Paul was an itinerant. He had gone out as a missionary to evangelize the ancient world, and he couldn't stay there in Philippi. He had to move on to other places. And that's where we pick up the narrative today, here in Acts chapter 17. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15 today. And if we get through the end of the chapter, well, that'll be great, but I wouldn't count on it. So, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Bear in mind that in Philippi, there hadn't been a synagogue of the Jews, had there? They had to go down to the river, presuming that there was a place of prayer, because there was no synagogue in Philippi. But there is a synagogue here in Thessalonica. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Women in those days, particularly in the Greek city-states, enjoyed a certain level of freedom that they did not find in Palestine. And it's always interesting to note that when Paul went out, oftentimes, it was the leading women of the city who were the first converts, or sometimes the ones who were the first to stir up persecution as well. But we see a, a high level of freedom among the women in these Greek city-states, very different from where Paul had started out. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money, a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, Acts chapter 17 is most famous 
for Paul's great address on Mars Hill, for the great sermon that he delivered before the Areopagus, the great debating society in Athens. Well, what's interesting is that while that's what Acts chapter 17 is most famous for, it's only in the second part of the chapter. In the first part of this chapter, we find Paul not in Athens, but in two other cities, in Thessalonica and in Berea. And that at least gives us an opportunity to stop for a moment and talk a little bit about Paul's missionary strategy. Did you know that Paul had a strategy for how to reach the world? You know, if you're going to undertake any great endeavor, it's helpful to have a plan. Now, sometimes you have to be versatile. Sometimes you have to be willing to go with the flow. We all recognize that sometimes life interrupts. My wife has a wonderful expression. She says, life goes on around the plans we make. Paul had a plan when he started off on this first missionary journey. He was going to go to Ephesus. Do you recall that? And we're told that he was prevented from going there. And so he decided that he was going to go north and swing back through Bithynia to the east. But we're told the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from doing so, so that the only thing that Paul could do on this second missionary journey was to carry on in a sort of westward direction between these two forbidden territories until he came to the coast at Troas and had that vision of the man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. At which point we're told Paul crossed the Hellespont and he went into Europe. But the point is, he had a plan. Now, God interrupted his plan. Sometimes we have an agenda. We have to recognize that our agenda must always be subordinate to God's agenda. But what is interesting is that he nevertheless had a strategy. He did have a plan. And we're beginning to see that strategy very clearly. We've already seen hints of it. Now, from this point forward, we're going to see Paul's strategy in full force. How is he going to reach the ancient world as quickly as possible? How is he going to reach as many people as possible with the gospel message? Paul recognized that if that was his task, if that was the goal that had been set for him, then he had to go where the most people were. And where were the most people? In the cities. We are going to see that Paul is going to focus almost exclusively in his missionary journeys from here on out on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. In fact, what's interesting is that the book of Acts starts in a city. And the book of Acts ends in a city. It starts in the great spiritual city of the ancient world, the most important city, the holy city. It begins where? In Jerusalem, doesn't it? Where God, the Holy Spirit, came upon the apostles on Pentecost, empowering them for work. And the book of, Acts end, and book of Acts ends where? Not in Jerusalem, but in Rome. Greatest secular city of the ancient world. The imperial capital. And in the chapters between, you find Paul and his companions going from one city to the next. I think that's very important. I think it's very important because it says that Paul recognized the value of cities. I don't know that we necessarily recognize the value of cities today. We should. We should recognize that cities are places where everything comes and goes. If you really want to reach the world, you have to think strategically and you have to think about the cities. 
Now, that's not to say that you can't bear witness wherever you are. Of course you can. And it's not to say that Paul was not concerned with small villages. When I was in Buford, I used to say, if Paul were still operating today, there are many places that he would love to go and establish a Christian presence. He would love to go to New York, Chicago, perhaps Houston, Atlanta. He probably would not have gone to Buford, South Carolina. Now, Bufortonians took great offense at that, but nevertheless... It's not to say that he was unconcerned with that. It was just that Paul recognized that if you can establish a Christian presence in the great metropolitan areas where everything comes and goes, all the commerce, all the thought, all the fashion, it's not long before the gospel, like everything else, is coming and going as well. I remember when, years ago, Kristen and I went to London. And uh, when we got over there, it's kind of a funny story. It was our honeymoon. And... Um, she was suffering from a sinus infection when we got on the plane. And so when we were coming down, you know, the, the change in uh, air temperature and so forth, she got a bruised sinus, which is extremely painful. So we arrived in London. She had never been out of the country at that point. I had, but she had never been out of the country before. And when we got there, I was ready to go. The only thing she wanted to do was go to bed. And I said, you, you can't go to bed. We're in London. I don't want to do anything but go to bed. And I said, well, you shouldn't go to bed. You know, you'll have jet lag. It'll be a disaster. I said, why don't we go visit Buckingham Palace? I don't want to see Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I said, well, why don't we just take a stroll through Hyde Park? I don't want to see Hyde Park. I'm miserable. I feel terrible. I said, well, how about the Victorian Albert? Jeff, I don't want to do anything. And in desperation, I pulled out the most powerful thing that I had in my arsenal. I said, well, what about Herod's? Herod's? <laughs> I mean, it was like Lazarus raised from the dead. She said, well, now, Herod's, maybe. And uh, it turns out, we spent the whole day in Herod's. Somehow, she recovered and uh, did very well. But it was funny because we went there to Harrods, and the one thing she wanted to do in Harrods was she wanted to get this pair of shoes that would become very fashionable. They were, they were the, the thing in Charleston at the time, and that, they were called mules. Some of you may, ladies know what that means, mules. And so she was desperate. Oh, I'll, I'll be able to find them in Harrods, and that'll just be wonderful. And so we went to the ladies' department there in Harrods where they were selling the shoes and so forth, and she went up to the lady, very attractive lady, well-dressed, behind the counter, and Kristen said, I'm here to look for a certain kind of shoes. And the lady said, yes, madam, what are you looking for? And Kristen said, I would like to purchase a pair of mules. And that lady looked down her nose at Kristen, and she said, oh, darling, those went out seasons ago. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, we were a little behind the times over here. In the cities, things had already come and gone. That's the way it is in the cities, isn't it? Took a little while for mules to make it to Charleston, but they'd already been there in London. Paul understood that that's the way it was with the gospel. If you can establish a Christian presence in the great cities of the world, you can reach the world. We need to think strategically. It's one of the reasons why in my last parish we had a mission work in China. Because the reality is, if you want to reach the world with the gospel, China's a good place to start. 
We may not like to think about it that way, but, but China is an enormous country. It's the largest population in the world. And because we live now in a global economy, the reality is if China catches or sneezes, we all catch the cold, don't we? That's just the way it is. So if you're thinking about a strategic place where you can go and really reach the world, the, the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that would be a good place to begin. Well, I want you to notice we need to think strategically as Christians. Those on the other side, those in the secular world, always have a plan. They always have a strategy. And so often we Christians are only reacting. And that's how we appear oftentimes in the culture, as reactive to what the world is doing rather than proactive. Well, you can't be proactive if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a strategy. Paul had a plan, and he had a strategy, and that strategy centered on the great cities. We're going to see him go here to Thessalonica and to Berea, but he's going to go on to other places as well. He's already been to Philippi. He's going to go to Ephesus. He's going to go to Corinth. And eventually, as I said, he'll make it all the way to Rome, where he will have the privilege and the opportunity to bear witness before the most powerful temporal ruler of his day, Caesar himself. So it's just a word about planning and having a strategy for how you reach people. And Paul had that. Very different from the way Peter and others did it early on. As I said, they pretty much what? Shared the gospel as the opportunities presented themselves. But in Acts 13, we see a change. Now they are beginning to focus very intentionally, on areas where the gospel had not been preached. Well, we find Paul come to one of these great cities of the ancient world. It was the ancient city of Thessalonica. It wasn't as great as some of the other cities that Paul went to, um, but it was an important city. It was the chief city of the Roman region of Macedonia, and it was located on one of the great Roman roads. Now, it was a center of trade and commerce. Not in the same way that Corinth was. You see Corinth down there to the south. You'll notice that Corinth sits there on the isthmus. In fact, if you go to Corinth today, you can still see the Great Canal where the ships go through. It's a marvelous place. Uh, Corinth was very important in the ancient world because any goods that were coming from the west to the east or vice versa would travel through that isthmus, and they had to go through Corinth. It was a much shorter route than having the ships sail to the south around the Peloponnese. So Corinth was a very important city, probably second only to Rome in the ancient world. Thessalonica was not quite that important, but it was, as I said, a chief city of Macedonia. And as a consequence, all the goods that were coming into that region and all the goods that were being exported from that region had to go through Thessalonica. It's still there today. It's called by a different name. It's called Salonica today. And it is still an important city in that part of the world. But it was important in Paul's day. And so he went into this great city in the hopes of establishing a Christian presence. Now, we need to take another look at Paul's missionary strategy because it wasn't just aim at the cities. Paul actually broke that strategy down into finer details. Once you arrive in the city, what do you want to do? Well, Paul would go into a city, and the first thing he would always do is he would establish a point of contact. He would establish a point of contact. Whatever our strategy is to reach a particular area, we have to, once we get there, establish a point of contact. Paul knew that he had to meet people in order to proclaim the gospel to them. 
What was Paul's point of contact in the ancient world? Well, it's very clear on almost every occasion, when he could, he started off by going first and foremost to the synagogues. Now, he couldn't do that in Philippi, we said, because there wasn't a synagogue. But in all the other places that he had gone, on that first missionary journey, when he went to Iconium and to Lystra and to Derbe and to Pisidian Antioch, he always went first and foremost into the synagogue. Here he does that again. He goes in to the synagogue. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. Now, his custom, of course, would have been to go in there as a Jew, but it was also a point of contact. Why would you use the synagogue as a point of contact? Well, because at least he knew that there were two types of people there. There were Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures, and so he could begin to use the Old Testament scriptures as a means by which he would proclaim Jesus Christ. The other people that would be there would be the Gentile God-fearers. These were people that were not Jews. They had not converted to Judaism, but they were the nevertheless interested in the things of Judaism. When we think about the early deacon who went out and proclaimed to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember Philip who went out and proclaimed to the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch had been where? He had been up worshiping in Jerusalem and he was riding back in his chariot reading from the prophet Isaiah. He was not a Jew, but he was a God-fearer. And we're told that Philip started with that very passage and proclaimed to him the good news of Jesus Christ. That was a point of contact, you see. Well, that's what Paul would do. He would go in here and he would use the synagogue as a point of contact. If we are going to be effective, and one of the things that I pointed out to you about the book of Acts is that Acts is not merely a history, a record of what happened in the past. It is that. It does tell us the story and the history of the early church, but Acts is more than that. The book of Acts is meant to be a blueprint for how we do ministry today. The world of Paul's time needed to be evangelized. There were people out there who were perishing. Well, guess what? The world of our time is filled with people who are perishing, and the world still needs to hear the gospel today. And the question is, how are we going to do it? Well, we can follow in Paul's footsteps. One thing that we can do is begin to think strategically about how we evangelize. And the second thing we have to do, once we have found the place that we want to evangelize, is to establish a point of contact. The church is never going to be effective unless we begin to think along these lines. Now the question is, how do we establish points of contact today? Is the synagogue the best place to do that? Probably not. Probably not. Well, a bar, somebody who said bar? Well, perhaps. That's not where I was going, but I suppose it's always a possibility. I want to suggest to you today that when you begin to establish points of contact today, one way that the church can do that is by identifying the needs in a particular community. People today, particularly in the 21st century and in the Western world, are very conscious of their needs. And this is a great opportunity for us as the church to establish a point of contact. For example, parents today, I have found, are deeply concerned about the educational opportunities that are afforded their children. There's not a presidential election that goes by where education is not a topic of discussion, is there? 
How many people are concerned about their children's education or their grandchildren's education? I mean, we start, we, I didn't go to preschool. Now, some of you may be thinking, that was the problem. But, <laughs> but I never went to preschool. My goodness, I started school when I was in kindergarten. There was no preschool. For the first four years of my life, I was carefree. It was great. I was nothing but a kid. But now we get them started early, don't we? We want to make sure that they have every advantage afforded to them, the whole point of which is that they can get a good education so that they can do what? Get good grades so that they can get good SAT scores, so that they can get into a good college, so that they can get a good job, so that they can make good money, so they can take care of their good parents in their dotage. <laughs> we are deeply concerned about this, aren't we? Isn't education a huge issue in America today? Isn't it a huge issue in South Carolina today? Wouldn't that be a great opportunity for us? A great point of contact for the church. Not only to educate them in terms of the math and the science and the English and the history, but also to educate them in the knowledge of the one who is the source of all wisdom. This is one of the things I discovered when I was in Beaufort for 17 years, is that people were deeply concerned about their education, the education of their children, but they were also deeply concerned about those children growing up in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And one of the things that we noticed is that there were lots of schools, but none of them seemed to be doing what we were hoping for, and that is to have a very rigorous academic environment, but one that was authentically Christian. My experience had been you had some schools that were rigorous academically, but they were devoid of all things Christian. On the other hand, there were some church schools out there that certainly trained people up in the way that they should go, but they didn't really seem to be rigorous in terms of academics. And we were told that we should worship the Lord with all our mind and heart and strength. So there's a place for the mind in the Christian life. Some of the greatest witnesses of the 20th century were people with big brains. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and people like that. Great intellectuals. The world needs Christian intellectuals. And so what did we do? Well, we established a school down there. Holy Trinity Classical Christian Academy. And I'm glad to say it's, it's going great. And these Christians are being raised to know and to love the Lord, these young people, but they're also being raised to think and to reason. Our hope was to produce an entirely different kind of person. Are you aware of the fact that cultures cultivate a particular kind of person? If we are unhappy with the kind of people that we are producing today, then we need to change the culture. How many of you think we've got a problem in the political sphere today? You think so? One of the things I've noticed is that we produce professional politicians. We do a very good job of that. Professional politicians. You know what we don't produce anymore? Statesmen. Now, if you want to produce statesmen, what do you got to do? You've got to change the culture. Because cultures cultivate. What a great opportunity for us as the church. You want to produce a different type of person, a different type of citizen, a different type of man or woman? Produce a different type of culture. Education is a great contact point for people today who are very much aware of the need. 
Healthcare is another area of great concern. We hear about that all the time, don't we? Debates about the big drug companies, about health care, about Obamacare. No matter what side of the debate you are on today, health care is a major issue, isn't it? How many of you are concerned about your health care? Be honest. You should be. Because guess what? You're all terminal. If you didn't realize that, we should all be concerned about health care. One of the things we noticed when I was in Beaufort down there, and this was, these, these ideas were not mine alone, believe me. These were ideas that, that percolated from the congregation up. But one of the things that we noticed in Beaufort was that there were a lot of people that could not afford health care, and there was not a single free medical clinic on our side of the Broad River. Not a single one. There was one over in Hilton Head, but there was nothing in Beaufort. And so we established the first free medical clinic on our side of the Broad River. We called it the Good Neighbor Free Medical Clinic. And the doctors from the parish, many of whom were retired doctors, but still could practice, would go in. They wanted something to do. <laughs> we put them to work. We put the nurses to work. And I went in there, and they cared for the needs of people who could not care for themselves. It's a great opportunity. And they came in hoping that they would be healed, and we introduced them to the great physician. Great opportunity for us to not only give them the medication they need, but to give them the gospel that could heal their souls. What a great opportunity for us. A great point of contact. Huge number of unwed mothers today. Crisis pregnancies in the world. In this community and others, we're seeing this more and more. What a great point of contact for the church today. Youth ministries. We see our youth growing up in a very confusing time. Many young people don't know where to turn. This is going to be the first generation, the millennial generation, since World War II that will not have it as good as their parents had it. Did you know that? Be the first generation in the nation's history since the Second World War that will not have it as good financially as their parents did. But it's not just where we've neglected them in that respect. We've neglected them in terms of what? Their spiritual upbringing. This is a whole generation that are commonly referred to as the nuns. And do you know why they're called the nuns? Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. It's because when they have to fill out forms and it says religious affiliation, they put none. None. You don't think there's a need to reach out and make a difference? It's an established fact that if you have not reached young people with the gospel, by the time they go to college, the chances of getting them decrease significantly. It's one of the reasons why we brought on Ryan Street, so that he can do ministry up there at the College of Charleston. <laughs> so that we can reach this younger generation. Is that a point of contact? You better believe it. How about the declining church? We see so many churches today that have were once great institutions, powerhouses for the gospel that have declined and have only a marginal ministry in the world today and in their community. See, these are all points of contact. Whatever the need may be in a community, the church ought to be looking at that as an opportunity, as a point of contact for us to share the gospel. If we are nothing more than a very nice, very impressive chapel, we have missed the point of the Christian gospel. 
Somebody has said, if you do not have a missionary heart, you only have half the blessing of the good news. Paul had a heart and a desire to reach the world, and he had a strategy, and he had the tactics to employ in the fulfillment of that strategy. Yes? Certainly in this city. In, in, in the city of Charleston, it's going to be different than it would be in the city of Philadelphia, perhaps. But the challenge for us at St. Philip's or St. Michael's or wherever you are, St. Matthew's Lutheran or wherever church you go to, is to begin to ask the question, what are the needs in this particular community? And then how do we employ the gospel in the needs? Her, her, her point was that, well, we, Martha's absolutely correct. We ought to be in the bars and on Upper King Street because this is where the young people are. And I'm saying that may very, very well be the case in Charleston. I'd say there are other areas in Charleston besides that. That's certainly a place where we can reach young people today. But there are certainly other needs in the community. The point is we have to begin to think strategically about these things. And my point is that you just don't go into the synagogue as Paul did. That was a great point of contact for him in the first century. In the 21st century and in Charleston, that point of contact may be different. In Philippi, where there was no synagogue, Paul went where? Down by the river. So that's the challenge for us where we are in our day and age. The need may not be for a Christian school today, a classical Christian academy. Maybe it is, I don't know. But these are the issues. And many of you have been in Charleston for years. You've seen the challenges. You've seen the changes. These are the things as Christian people we need to be thinking about. Great points of contact. Third thing I want you to notice. Once Paul went into the city and once he established a point of contact, what did he do next? Well, we're told that he went in and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. You see that there in verse 2? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want you to notice four things about what Paul did once he established a point of contact. First thing he did is he began with the scriptures. He began with the scriptures. Why do you suppose that Paul started with the scriptures? Well, because Paul believed that the scriptures were not merely the words of men. He believed that the scriptures were the what? The word of God. Keep your finger there in Acts for just a moment and flip over to 2 Timothy for just a minute. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is, what does the text say? Well, some texts say inspired. The old King James Version said, inspired by God. My text says, breathed out by God. That's the better rendering. Nothing wrong with the King James Version. Certainly all scripture is inspired by God, but then again, somebody might go so far as to say William Shakespeare was inspired by God. The Greek here is theopanoustos. Theo, God, 
panoustos, from which we get the word panuma, pneumatic, pneumonia, having to do with the lungs, the breathing apparatus of the body. So what Paul is saying is that all Scripture is not simply inspired in the same way that a symphony may be inspired or a novel may be inspired. No, he says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore what? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Why did Paul, once he had established a point of contact, Go in and start with the scriptures because the scripture is the word of God. And it is the word of God that brings life. Too many preachers take their text from the scriptures, but then to proceed to preach from the New York Times. The challenge, whenever we find a point of contact, is for the church to stay true to the scriptures. Paul did that. It's the first thing he did. He started with the scriptures. He not only started with the scriptures, we're told he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I think that is so important in our day and age. Many conservative churches have denigrated the value of reason. Paul did not go into an area and simply spout the Bible at people. He believed that the Bible was the word of God, but what he did was he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And following from reasoning with them from the scriptures, we're told he explained the scriptures to them. That's really what it means. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining. How many times have you ever read through the scriptures and found something rather difficult to understand? Well, if you've been raised in the church and you find parts of the Bible difficult to understand, how difficult do you think it is for somebody who's never been raised in a religious environment? and say, well, I just preach the Bible at them. Well, that's better than nothing, I suppose. But that's not what Paul did here. He went in. He started with the Scriptures because it's the Word of God, but he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He said, think about this. Take this into consideration. Think about the implications of that. That's one of the things that people rarely do today, is think about the implications of their actions, let alone the implications of their ideas and their thoughts. Sometimes you have to force people to that point, don't you? I understand you believe that, but why do you believe that? And what's the consequence of believing that? Paul reasoned with them. He explained the scriptures to them. And then finally, having reasoned with them, having explained the scriptures, he went on to proclaim. To proclaim what? To proclaim Christ Jesus explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In other words, once Paul started with the Scriptures, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and I believe that he reasoned with them in a very winsome and attractive way. I mean, so many times when you think of Jesus as a teacher, what are, the depictions in art are very depressing, aren't they? I don't know about you, but Jesus always comes across to me as sort of weak and effeminate, a sort of pusillanimous figure up there. Jesus was nothing like that. Jesus had worked in a carpenter shop for the greater part of his life. 
He traveled all the dusty roads. Huge crowds of people came to hear Jesus because he was a great storyteller. And he told stories in such a way that people were drawn to him. That's the way we should preach the gospel. That's the way we should share the gospel. If the gospel doesn't come out as exciting from us, why should anybody embrace it? Paul did this, and he did it in an exciting and winsome way. And then, once he had reached that point, he proclaimed to them Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. Why? Because the power of the cross is the power of the gospel. That's what Paul says. He says, but the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to the Greeks, but to those who are being saved it is what? It is the power of God. It is the power of God. And so what Paul is doing here is he is proclaiming Christ Jesus. We would call this the kerygma, the mystery of faith. What's the mystery of faith? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. He always got to that point. He didn't simply impress them or wow them with his intellect, with his ability to reason. In the end, it was all aimed at one great goal, and that was to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what Paul did. Very important. Now, those are the things that Paul did. I want you to notice what Paul didn't do. He did not entertain them. We are living in an entertainment culture. And many people want to be entertained. They want to go to churches where they are entertained. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel message and the way that it is proclaimed should not be engaging. But I am saying that the main goal, the main point is not simply to entertain people. You know, there are churches that paint their whole sanctuaries black. They have fancy lights, fog machines, and it's like going to a rock concert. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't find a point of contact. That may be the best way to reach a particular segment of society. But if the whole goal is simply to get lots of people to turn out, the Grateful Dead can do it better than you can. <laughs> people follow them for decades. They're not going to follow you for decades because you're never going to be able to entertain them in the same way that the Grateful Dead did. Paul did many things he did not merely entertain. Now, what were the results of Paul's work in Thessalonica? Well, we are told that a church was established there. And it was a church that survived for a very long time. That's what we read in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So I want you to notice that a church was established. The word of the Lord never comes back void. That's what Isaiah says. That's why Paul stuck with the word of the Lord. God is always going to prosper his word, send it out for the purpose for which it was intended. But I also want you to notice that something else happened. We've already seen this pattern. Wherever Paul went into a community and he preached the gospel, there was what? Division. There was division between those who accepted the message and those who rejected the message. We saw that every place he went on his first missionary journey. In Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, 
In Pisidian Antioch, Paul would go in and he'd preach the gospel, and there'd be division. There'd be, some people would accept the message, some people would reject the message. On the part of those who rejected the message, what? They would stir up trouble for Paul and oftentimes expel him from the region. And in the case of one of those cities, they actually dragged him outside the city and stoned him into an unconscious state, thinking we're dead. That's exactly what happened here. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. We have to recognize that if we're going to be serious about the Christian gospel, we are going to face opposition. Sometimes the opposition is going to be dishonest. Look at the charges that were leveled against Paul and his companions. The first charge was that these men had turned the world upside down. These men who were turning the world upside down have come here also. Now in one sense, that was true, wasn't it? Paul and his companions were turning the world upside down. But actually, if you think about it, they were turning the world right side up. <laughs> the world was already upside down as a consequence of the fall and sin. What was Paul doing? By proclaiming the gospel, he was putting the world right side up. But the charge was that they were what? Troublemakers. Sometimes that's what Christians are accused of being. You're nothing but a group of troublemakers. That's what Paul was accused of, being a troublemaker. He was accused of having caused all kinds of difficulty. Did that just suddenly fast forward there? No. So those were the charges that were brought against Paul. Second charge was that he was teaching against Caesar. Now, was that true? No. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Paul was released from Philippi was because he had not taught against Caesar. But nevertheless, that was the charge that was being brought against him. The next part of the charge, however, was true. Paul was saying that there was another king, and that king was Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Because in the ancient world, kings were not constitutional monarchs. Kings didn't run for re-election. They didn't exist at the pleasure of the people. Kings were absolute monarchs. And in the ancient world, at least in the Roman world, there was only one absolute king, and that was Caesar. And what Paul was coming in, he was saying there was a new king. A new king, and every knee would bow to him, and every tongue confess that he is Lord, and that new king is what? King Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Eventually, Paul had to leave the region. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, what were the results? You know, Americans are result-oriented people. We want to know, did the strategy work? And if not, then we need to tweak it again, don't we? Did the strategy work? Did Paul's missionary strategy work here in Thessalonica? Well, the book of Acts doesn't tell us. You get the condensed version here. But if you turn to Paul's letter, and he wrote two of them, but if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, a letter that Paul eventually wrote to this church sometime later, we get a sense of what happened. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, when he went to Thessalonica for the first time, 
and he preached. We're told the preaching was blessed by God. So evidently, there were some who believed, we're told. Preaching was blessed by God. Second thing he tells us was that the people received the word of God. Now, maybe not all the people, but at least some of the people received the word of God. Third thing he said was that the believers began to model their life after him. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's dangerous. They're modeling their life after Paul. They should be modeling their life after who? After Jesus Christ. But did they have Jesus Christ? See, even in the synagogue, they didn't have the New Testament scriptures, did they? They didn't even have the Sermon on the Mount. What did they have? They had the Old Testament scriptures, and the only thing that they had close to Christ himself was what? Paul. So because he came proclaiming Jesus Christ, and he was the closest thing to Christ that they knew, they began to model their life after him. Let me ask you a question. If you are going to be Christ to another person, is your life worthy of being modeled? That's a question you've got to ask yourself, you see. If you're called to share the gospel with other people, as Paul did, and you may be the only contact that a person has ever had with Jesus Christ, and you're the only picture of what it means to be a little Christ one, because that's what the word Christian means, let me ask you a question. Is your life worthy of being modeled? Because that's what they were doing. They were modeling themselves after Paul. And if our lives are not worthy of being modeled, then we need to take a good hard look at ourselves, don't we? Because that is what people are going to do. You may be the only encounter that a person has ever had with Jesus Christ. They began to model their lives after Paul. He goes on to say, but they didn't just model their life after me. Eventually, they became models themselves. See, that's called discipleship. The whole purpose of which is not simply to evangelize, but to do what? To transform people into little Jesus Christ. So that the word is passed on. Finally, Paul says, the church in Thessalonica engaged in mission. Now, by the standards of the world, that may not seem like a huge success. But ladies and gentlemen, we are here today as the result of Paul's evangelism in Europe because of what happened in places like Thessalonica. So we need to come up with a missionary strategy in this city for how we're going to reach this city and the world with the gospel. We need to find points of contacts. What are those points of contact going to be? Once we find the point of contact, what do we have to do? We need to go in there and we need to begin to start with the scriptures. We need to have confidence in the scriptures. People are not in need of your opinions or mine. What they are in need of is a word from the Lord. And we need to reason with them in a winsome and attractive way. We need to appeal to their reason. Ask them to think about these things. And we need to get around to proclaiming Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and raised from the dead for their justification. And we need to do that with confidence and with hopefulness. Well, Paul went on from Thessalonica to Berea. And there's not a whole lot here about Berea, only about five verses, but what a remarkable church it was. The first thing we're told that when Paul went to Berea, they arrived and went into the Jewish synagogue, and verse 11 says, Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What a wonderful way to be described. 
The Bereans were of a more noble character than the people in Thessalonica. Wouldn't you like to be described that way? Those people in Charleston are of a more noble sort than those people in wherever. I don't want to say anywhere in particular. I was going to say Savannah, but you didn't hear that from me. But what made them noble? It wasn't just breeding, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't just background. It wasn't just heritage. What made these people more noble than those in Thessalonica? We're told. First reason was they received the word with all eagerness. Now, I don't think that means that they received it because they were naive. Somebody just came in brand new and told them to believe this, and they just automatically believed it. I think what it means that they received it with all eagerness means they did not close off their minds to it automatically. They were at least open. They gave Paul a hearing. They were at least willing to listen to what he had to say. They received the word with all eagerness. Second thing is they examined the scriptures. They examined the scriptures to do what? To see if these things were so. Every pastor ought to want a congregation like that. Now, I suppose there are some pastors that just want their congregation to take them at their word. I said it. You better believe it. And that better settle it. But a strong congregation knows its scriptures. And it listens to those in authority over them, provided that authority comes from God. And the only way you know it comes from God is if it is in accord with what? God's word. These were a more noble people because they were open to the message of the gospel. They weren't critical initially. They listened to see. And then they studied the scriptures to make sure that these things were so. And here's the third thing. They studied the scriptures what? Daily. Not just on Sunday. Not just on the days when the Bible studies were being taught. They studied the scriptures what? Daily. Give us this day our daily bread. When you pray the Lord's Prayer as a Christian and you say, give us this day our daily bread, are you just talking about a meal? Something that gives you physical sustenance? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? The daily bread that Jesus was talking about was much more than just physical sustenance. He was talking about spiritual sustenance, that which feeds the soul and the spirit and makes us strong. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Timothy? Because it is the scripture, he says, that is what? Profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped, strong for every good work. Listen, let me tell you something. You're never going to be strong as a Christian. You're never going to be able to do this kind of work. You're never going to be able to go out and turn the world upside down or right side up if you are not strong, and you're never going to be strong, if you are not feeding off of God's word, and if you're not feeding off of God's word, what? Daily. Daily. Now you say, well, I can't understand it. Well, I can give you a couple of points as to how you should approach the scriptures. First of all, I do not recommend you start at Genesis. If you've never read the Bible and think, I'm going to start at Genesis and I'm going to work my way through. It may be that Julie Anders says, Andrew says, that 
starting at the beginning is a very good place to start. But I don't recommend that when it comes to the Bible. Because let me tell you, you're going to get through Genesis, and you're going to be like, okay, I got this. And you're going to get through Exodus, and you're going to be like, oh, it's a little strange, but I got it. And then you're going to get to Leviticus. <laughs> and you're probably not going to get much further. And even if you get through Leviticus, eventually you get to that point in the Old Testament we call the begats. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you get to Kings... And so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, just like his father. And it goes on and on and on. And you're not going to be able to appreciate, let alone understand, those portions of the Scripture. So where should you start? If you've never read the Bible, start in the New Testament. Because the only way we can understand the Old Testament is through the lens of what happened with Jesus Christ. That's the only way the apostles could understand it. Don't start with Romans, necessarily. Start with Matthew. Start with Mark, start with Luke, start with John, one of the Gospels. Once you finish one, read one of the others. And work your way through the New Testament before you go back and begin to read the Old Testament and read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. But that's what makes an individual strong. And once the individual is strong, then the individual is able to go out and feed others. At that point, you can begin to develop a missionary strategy. Once you realize where God is calling you to go and to establish a Christian presence, then you can begin to talk about points of contact. Here's the way that we're going to reach this particular part of our community, our world, with the gospel. Then you can begin to proclaim Jesus Christ to the people of that community. And sooner rather than later, you will begin to see that the world, which had been turned upside down, by the proclamation of your message is being set right side up. That's what Paul did in Thessalonica and Berea. Would he do the same thing when he came to Athens? Well, we'll see when we come back together again next week. Paul on Mars Hill next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are living in a world remarkably similar to the one that the Apostle Paul lived in. The needs are so great. The opportunities are so great. But so often, Lord, Christians are so passive. Grant us the grace to see the opportunities that are before us. Grant us the grace by the Holy Spirit, to begin to develop a plan, a strategy. Grant us the wisdom to see the points of contact that are before us. And grant us the courage to come with the Scriptures, confident in their truth, to reason with people winsomely in an attractive way from the Gospel, and to present Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you.